Today we're going to continue our series in the book of Acts. I love the book of Acts. It's been incredibly relevant and timely for our church in the situation we're in because it's about a group of ragtag disciples who don't really know how to do church, but they're figuring it out. They're going along and they're through the power of the Holy Spirit, they're advancing in the midst of unbelievable odds and circumstances that should mean that they don't succeed, they still are finding ways to be the church. And that, that video just showed you right there how we are continuing to be the church as well, partnering with Begin Anew. Thank you to Andy for making that look so cool too. That video was shot right underneath where board member Bob Buckner is sitting, just below you where our TV studio is. That was actually filmed there and on the green screen. Do you hear that? Is that just me? Is it the monitors maybe? Maybe the, okay, it's the room. Sorry. It's like the voice of God. <laughs> last, last week we began Paul's third and final missionary journey in the book of Acts. We see how he's going to continue to go through these regions, planting churches, encouraging young new believers. And we saw that he landed in the city of Ephesus. Ephesus is a, a critically important city, not only in the book of Acts, but in the rest of the New Testament and in the whole story of the spread of the gospel around the world. Ephesus was the capital of the Roman province of Asia, which is now modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor, as you may know it. It was a huge city, very cosmopolitan. They had the, the famous Temple of Artemis. It was one of the seven wonders of the world. It was rebuilt several times, but by Paul's day, the Temple of Artemis was four times bigger than the Parthenon in Athens. Anybody seen the Parthenon? Uh, we have one here in our city. It's a replica, four times the size of that. It was massive. There were 127 pillars around it that were 60 feet high, and they were inlaid with gold and jewels. In the center of the temple, maybe if I move this down, will that help? It's killing me. <laughs> I need to be more flexible. In the center of the temple was this huge statue of Artemis, and they, they say that statue fell from the stars and, and landed there in Ephesus. She was the goddess of fertility. So there were cult prostitutes that served in the temple day and night, along with priests and other workers. And the whole city of Ephesus really was full of this kind of superstitious, dark arts. People were very into the occult in this city. But the amazing thing is, by God's grace and for his glory, after a few decades, after Paul arrives with the good news of Jesus Christ, the city is, is converted and they make Christianity the official religion of the city of Ephesus. But first, the Ephesians would have to come to terms with the spiritual darkness that really gripped their city. They had a, a very spiritual darkness hovering over the entire city. You know, a lot of people are uncomfortable talking about spiritual matters. Often, I think it's because they themselves are probably unspiritual people. You know, Richard Foster in his book, uh, Celebration of Discipline, he says the great need in our world today isn't for smarter people or for more uh, capable or more strong people. It's for people of depth, people who are spiritual, people who are deep people who have a, a reservoir of spiritual resources from which to draw. And what we're going to see here is that, that the Bible is clear, that there are forces at work all around us all the time. 
that we don't think about a lot because they are unseen. Jesus told us that our enemy has come to steal and kill and destroy. There's a war raging all around us. Satan, our enemy, and his forces are constantly scheming up ways to break us down physically, emotionally, mentally, and especially spiritually. But Jesus also told us that he has come to bring life, abundant life. And he and his forces are also working behind the scenes and they're working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So today we're going to see that play out in the city of Ephesus. In Ephesus, again, Paul's going to write to them many years later in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. He's going to write this to the church in Ephesus. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's what we're going to see here in Ephesus. Spiritual warfare is real. And we would do well to pay attention to it and not just pretend like it doesn't exist because it does. So we, we tend to become blind to the spiritual war around us because of the physical, immediate reality of this world. We all have pressing issues and concerns that are very real that we always look at in the immediate time. We have honest concerns about our health, about our nation right now, about our family, about our work, about our church. I worry about our church probably more than anybody. I worry about finances. I worry about my mom. I worry about all these different things that are going on in my life, and we tend to become numb to the spiritual reality of what's going on around us. There's a story I heard uh, during the Battle of Waterloo. You his history buffs out there know 1815. You have Napoleon Bonaparte. He's, you know, raging across Europe, and he's threatening to take over all of Europe, the, the French army. And the Duke of Wellington aligned a coalition of, of the British forces that met him at Waterloo, and the stakes were super high. If the French won this battle, it's very possible that they would take over uh, Britain. So they, they used a system of flag signals back then called semaphore. I had to look this up, but they would wave flags to spell out letters. And they were relaying news across the English Channel uh, from the Battle of Waterloo, which I think took place in Belgium. And so there was a, a big cathedral in Winchester just across from the Channel. And there was a guy up there with flags, and he was signaling to the, the British officials, and they're watching for this one letter at a time system. And they could read W-E-L-L-I-N-G-T-O-N, Wellington, they got that. And then the next word came, D-E-F-E-A-T-E-D, -E -E defeated. Wellington defeated. And a fog rolled in as it does over the English Channel, and they couldn't see anything else. And they were devastated. The French had won. Wellington was defeated. All was lost. Britain may become French, you know, at this point. And just then the fog lifted and the, the frantic poor flag guy was waving his arms and there was more to the message. T-H-E-E-N-E-M-Y. Wellington defeated the enemy. 
What a difference those two words make. You know, sometimes we are overwhelmed by the forces of evil in this world because they are very real and they do overwhelm us easily. And right when the darkness is rolling in, the fog sets in and we don't see a way out. We don't have clarity. We can't discern what God is signaling to us. Today, I hope that we can lift some of the haze of this world and this present darkness in order to see the full message that Christ has defeated the enemy, the good news of the gospel. Our text for today is Acts chapter 19. I invite you to turn there if you have your Bibles. Acts 19, 8 to 20, where we see the evil powers of Ephesus on full display. It was really a, you know, a city full of witchcraft. Fortune tellers were big business. There were a lot of con artists and swindlers that used the dark arts to take your money. It was also kind of a seedy town. It was kind of like a, you know, Vegas or something. There were a lot of crime and, and your run-of-the-mill murderers and adulterers and thieves there. It was a fortress of, of darkness. And, and we're going to see that that darkness first comes under attack in our text. And then we're going to see the darkness in confusion. And then uh, at the end, we're going to see darkness in retreat. So let's first look at darkness under attack. Look at verse 8. And Paul entered the synagogue, and for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. So what we see is Paul does his ministry in Ephesus the same way he does in most cities. He starts out in the synagogue preaching and teaching about the fulfillment of the Hebrew scriptures, that the Messiah has come to earth, Jesus Christ, to rescue God's people. And the authorities in Ephesus were more gracious than the ones in Thessalonica. He only got to preach for three weeks in Thessalonica before they kicked him out. But in Ephesus, he stays for three months, but eventually it becomes too much because the opposition to the gospel becomes so great that Paul has to leave the synagogue. People are shouting, interrupting, slanderous things against Christ and against the gospel, and he wouldn't have it anymore, so he finds the lecture hall of Tyrannus. He probably rented it out for a few hours a day. One source tells us that Paul preached in the uh, lecture hall of Tyrannus from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m., five days a week, six days a week, actually, every day except for the Sabbath. And I don't know about you, have you been to the Mediterranean area uh, in the middle of summer? Uh, it's really hot, especially in those afternoon hours. It gets cool at night, but it's so hot in the afternoon, which is why in Spain they take a siesta. Apparently in Ephesus, it was the same thing. People would take a siesta, so he got the lecture hall cheap during the afternoon hours because nobody wanted to be working in the afternoon heat. But Paul didn't care. He was on a mission. He was completely full of zeal and energy and passion that was all a gift of God. We read in the, the next chapter that he was also employed in Ephesus as a tent maker, which means he must have 
gotten up super early. I, I got an email from a church member. I won't embarrass her, but it was 4.57 a.m. I was like, you are an early riser indeed. I don't do early mornings well. Uh, 4.57 a.m., that's a record. I've gotten a few, you know, 5.15, 5.30, but never before five. Uh, Paul's an early riser as well because he gets up to work on his trade and, and support himself. And then he goes to the lecture hall for five hours teaching during the hottest part of the day. He's unstoppable because he's filled with the Holy Spirit. He's a spiritual compulsion, a spiritual energy driving him to push forward the kingdom of God in Ephesus. You know, he taught for free. And if you do the math on this, if he's doing five hours a day, six days a week for uh, 52 weeks, that's roughly 1,560 hours of preaching and teaching and exhorting the scriptures and teaching apologetics per year. That doesn't include any study time and preparation that he's doing either. I try to figure out the math on how much I preach and teach. I figure it's somewhere around 50, 60 hours a year, roughly 1,500 hours less than Paul taught for each of two years. In Eph he kept this up for two years in Ephesus. Paul was a man with a singular purpose and a singular passion to push back against the powers of darkness that prevail over Ephesus and over this world and to usher in the, the hope and the healing that is found in the gospel of Christ. He was making a relentless assault against the fortress of evil in Ephesus with the gospel at his side, with the gospel as his weapon. That, that long-standing presence, a stronghold of evil was starting to fall in Ephesus. We see evidence of that in verses 10 through 12. This continued for two years so that all the residents, not just of Ephesus, but of Asia, heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Wow, what miraculous power on display here in Ephesus. It's another revival breaking out, this time in Asia Minor. Luke says here that everyone, all the residents of Asia, heard the word of the Lord. You know, those uh, seven letters that were written to the seven churches in Revelation chapter two and chapter three, a lot of you church people know what I'm talking about. I think Rachel and Lil are doing a Bible study right now on this passage in Revelation. All seven of those churches came to exist during this time, during these two years that Paul was teaching in Ephesus. People were planting churches all around the region. It was an awesome time. And miraculous signs and wonders are also being done. You see that people are getting healed because of they just come in indirect contact with Paul through his handkerchiefs and aprons. Now, many of you have seen like these televangelists. I know we're on TV and like my friends like to you know, make fun of me like, you're a televangelist now. I hope I'm not remembered as a televangelist. But uh, you've seen these guys that are selling like a handkerchief that's been dipped in the Jordan River 
And if you will uh, prayerfully apply it to your body, then you will be healed. And if you will sow your donation of only $100, then we will send you this miraculous handkerchief right immediately in direct mail. This is not that. Paul's not seeking monetary gain. People are like looking in his workshop for the rags that he would tie around his head and around his waist as he was tent making, and they would take them. <laughs> they're stealing from Paul because there's power in the name of Jesus Christ that Paul is filled with and proclaiming. These sweatbands and trade aprons are symbols of the honest, dignified humility of heart, the, the servant character that Paul both revealed and released the power of God, the power of the gospel over sickness and sin and death. So Paul worked to earn his keep. He taught five, four, uh, five hours a day. He pastored. He watched over God's people. He made house visits. He prayed for the sick. He was evangelizing. He planted churches. He went on these amazing missionary expeditions. What a guy. What an example for us to look to. From this point on, we're going to see that, that Paul is, is just over himself. He's died to himself and he's living only for the gospel. In our culture of individualism, and it's all about me and my iPhone and my iMac and my stuff and my privacy and my autonomy, Paul gives us a beautiful example of what it looks like to unbend on ourselves and to live freely for the gospel as he pours himself out as a drink offering, he would say later, for the sake of the gospel. Only what's done for Christ will last in this life. That's good to remember that. So now we're going to see the, the darkness is starting to get confused. I, I love this little next section. Let's look at verse 13. The gospel is having great success in Asia. And so other people want to get in on this because remember Ephesus, they're all looking to make a, a quick dollar on whatever the latest spiritual trend is. So look at verse 13. Some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Siva were doing this. Now, exorcism was a common trade in Ephesus. You know, again, people would pay top dollar to have a powerful wizard come to their business or their home or whatever and, and try to get rid of, of harmful, evil spirits. And the Greek Hellenistic folks of Asia believed that the Jews had, you know, secret access to some hidden God. So these Jewish guys say, we can make a lot of money here. We can peddle, you know, our Jewishness as a way of exercising evil. And then they hear about Jesus and Paul and they start talking about them in order to drive the name of uh, these evil spirits out. These are what we call bandwagon fans, right? I love how when the Preds are doing good or when the Titans are doing good, everybody's like, oh, I'm a huge Preds fan. I'm a huge Titans fan. You got guys who've you know, had season tickets from the beginning. Y'all know who you are. We have people here, PSLs, right? I know a lot of you bought PSLs like 
40 years ago, whatever, when the Titans, well, it's not been 40 years, but it's probably 20 since the Titans came to town. Some of you guys have been there from the beginning. These, these guys are bandwagon fans of Jesus. But the Lord wasn't having it. So he provided a memorable example for these guys, uh, these sons of Siva. They, they're telling this guy, I adjure you by the name of Jesus and the, the Paul who uh, he proclaims, that, that proclaims him. But the evil spirit answers them, these seven sons, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? <laughs> and the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. This is probably a story that got told a lot in the early church, I imagine, with a lot of laughter going on. And for those of y'all who don't know, uh, Black Eyed Siva was one of my favorite bands in high school. You probably never heard of them, but I saw them in concert at the Rafters at Belmont. Remember the barn at Belmont? Anybody remember the barn? Yeah, Logan knows. He's nodding his head. Uh, may it rest in peace now. It's where the basketball arena is now, I think, at Belmont. But uh, I saw a concert there, Black Eyed Siva, when I was in high school. It was pretty much life-changing for me. They changed their name because no one could pronounce their band name right. Black Eyed Siva. Nobody could. Skiva? Siva? I don't know. So the seven sons of Siva, they're trying to make a quick buck again by peddling the name of Jesus. And the demon-possessed man hears Jesus and Paul, and he says, yeah, I know who Jesus is. The demons always recognize the name of Jesus, right? They know who he is. And he says, Paul, I know too. He's been teaching over here, but who do you guys think you are? And he just beats them all senseless where they flee without a shred of clothing or dignity as they run out. And now we start to see the darkness retreat further. We're going to see the darkness in full retreat in verse 17. This became known, of course, a hilarious story, to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. That's the key point, that the name of Jesus, not Paul, not sons of Siva, but the name of Jesus is being lifted up and made larger. Remember that fear in the Bible isn't like a spooky, kind of afraid kind of fear. It's a proper reverence. It's a, a clearer picture of the greatness of God and of the frailty of human strength in the face of the awesome God. It's a sense of wonder. It's a sense of awe and just being overwhelmed by the goodness and the greatness and the holy perfection of God, of the triune God of the universe. And as revival spreads, so does a, a spiritual understanding, an understanding of what's wrong with the world. Why are things so messed up? It's because of sin. It's because of the dark forces of Satan. They're also understanding how to fix it. That Jesus has come to make all things new. That he's restoring, redeeming, recreating all things for God's sake, including you and me. And as we understand both uh, what's wrong with the world and who can fix it, the reality of our brokenness sets in. We start to understand just how deeply flawed we are at our core. This leads to confession and repentance. Look at verse 18. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. 
You know, every major revival, when you read about the history of revivals, every revival includes some kind of like mass confession of sin. People will come forward to publicly d- divulge their practices of evil to say, I've, I've sinned. I'm so broken. They start confessing to God and to one another. And here's the thing. There is no catharsis. There's no healing. There's no moving forward spiritually without repentance and confession. We have to acknowledge our own enormous capacity to make a mess of things. (laughs) We are all equally capable of really messing things up, aren't we? in our human weakness, in our flesh, in our fallen sinful nature, we can really mess stuff up. When the spirit truly moves in our hearts, our consciences are quickened. Our uh, you know, contrition is real. We're humbled in the face of a holy God. And the beauty is that in, it's not like a beat ourselves up thing, but in God's great grace, we find overwhelming streams of grace and mercy and forgiveness and love that we couldn't even imagine how great it is. We find that we are more loved than we ever could have dared to dream because of what Jesus has done for us. And when you study revivals, you'll also find that after a great confession of sin comes a wave of new belief of unbelievers who are coming to find hope and healing in Jesus Christ. And often it's people that you would never have expected to come to know Jesus Christ as Lord. Look at verse 19. A number of those who practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. What a witness that was. They counted the value of these cultic goods and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver, a fortune in evil manuscripts that were now gone up in flames in the full sight of the entire city of Ephesus. Darkness is in full retreat now. I'm sure the remaining dark art practitioners in Ephesus were full of fear and and not the good kind of reverent fear as they watched this revival happening and, and their business start to go out of business. And here's the connection. Don't miss this. This is so important. When the church authentically comes clean and lays all their baggage out on the table, and and confesses who we are, it becomes unresistible. It becomes completely irresistible to people on the outside. They start to see the church for who she truly is. They start to see the authentic body of Christ working as the presence of Jesus, bringing hope and healing to a world that desperately needs it. Not a bunch of pretenders, not a bunch of people who think they have it all together. Verse 20 sums up the whole text very nicely. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. God's truth and grace multiplied in the city of Ephesus. Revival had come and and nothing would ever be the same for the economy or the government or the, the history of Ephesus or really for Asia Minor or the whole world at this point. Ephesus becomes a major turning point in the spread of the gospel. The forces of darkness had been boldly attacked, defeated, and now the gospel was on full display. So what's it going to take for us 
to see that kind of revival in Nashville? What's it going to take for us to witness a breakthrough of the Holy Spirit? Ooh, <laughs> some of you are like, uh-oh, now it gets real. <laughs> I think so many of us have become so comfortable in our own brokenness. We've kind of learned to manage in our frailty, to kind of manage our sin problem on our own, that we don't really desire to be set free in the first place. The philosopher Soren Kierkegaard tells a story that illustrates this kind of comfortableness. He talks about a flock of wild ducks flying north over Europe, uh, going north for the, the summer. And they, they go over a barnyard and one of the ducks is tired and he sees uh, you know, some domestic ducks down in the barnyard. And he says, I'm just gonna stop, take a little rest. So he, he leaves the group, they fly on and he finds that there's like, you know, free corn scattered around for the domestic ducks. And he says, this is pretty great. And uh, he thinks it's safe in the barnyard there. So he just stays, says, I'll stay an hour. I'll just stay an hour. And then an hour turns into, I'm gonna spend the night here. And then a, a, a one night stay turns into a week and then a month and the whole summer goes by. And then one autumn day, he hears wild ducks flying over the barnyard going south for the winter. And he hears the, the quacks of his friends and he remembers what it was like to be free and wild and to, to go to the summer uh, feeding grounds. And he says, yes, my friends are back, let's do this. And so he takes off and he starts flapping his wings as hard as he can, but he doesn't get any higher than the barn because his new lifestyle has made him a little pudgy, a little unable to, I mean, quarantine's done that for all of us, but <laughs> he finds that he can't get up there. So he just goes back down, crashing to the barnyard and says, you know what? It's not so bad here. I got all the corn I can eat. It's pretty safe here in the barnyard. I think I'll just settle in here. And twice a year, he would hear the wild ducks flying over them and he would long to be part of them until one day he didn't even recognize the quacks of his friends because he'd been there so long. He didn't even pay any attention to the ducks overhead. There is a spiritual battle raging for our souls today. Just because we can't see it doesn't mean it's not there. Has your heart grown numb and calloused to the spiritual realities of this world today? Are you overwhelmed at what it would take to overcome evil in this life? Take heart, Jesus has already done it for us. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear. For God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you did not abandon us to our, our sin and the darkness and the forces of darkness, but you 
broke into the darkness, that the light of the world has come, and that nothing will be the same because you came to rescue us from our sins in a way that we could never have done on our own. God, I pray that you would help us not to get too comfortable in our sin and our brokenness, but that we would confess it to you. Help us to be vulnerable. Help us to be bold in saying, I'm broken. I can't do this on my own. Our friends in, in Celebrate Recovery tell us that in the, the 12 steps, we have to admit that we are powerless over our sin and that we need a savior to rescue us. And that is true for all of us here. And God, we thank you for Jesus, that he has overcome our enemy, that Satan has been dealt a, a death blow. We know he's mortally wounded, but God, he still wreaks havoc in our world. So we pray that you would help us to not fear the evil. We know that the evil cannot touch us because we are held in your hand. Yes, we will have tribulation, we'll have hard things, but the evil in those things cannot touch us because you have defeated the power of our enemy. When you rose from the grave, God, help us to walk out of here knowing confidently that you are working behind the scenes on our behalf and on the behalf of your kingdom, and that you are making all things new. God, help us pay attention to our hearts and what's going on inside of us. May we cultivate spiritual depth in our lives so that we can better understand the spiritual warfare around us that is very real as our enemy tries to steal and kill and destroy. May we live instead into the abundant life that is ours in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We pray this in the powerful name of Christ. Amen. Amen. We're going to have a time of response now. And um, I want to invite you to just respond in your heart to the Lord today, however you need to do that. If you're feeling that quickened conscience today, if you know you need to confess something, don't delay any longer. Come meet with me. You know, you can talk to me and tell me anything in confidence. Absolutely. Tell your Sunday school teacher, tell your friend, your spouse, tell your parents, whatever it is that you need to confess, get it off your chest today. Confess your sins one to another, says the Lord. Then we begin to move into hope and healing. And I pray that we can do that as we pray for revival in our city, that we would see a breakthrough. Uh, we know that our city is flawed. We know that we are flawed and that we need the gospel to break the chains of bondage that we all walk in without Jesus Christ. Will you respond? I'll be in the South Lobby today. Uh, if you want to just say hey or give me an elbow bump um, or whatever it is that you want to do. We have a lot of guests here today. That's a wonderful thing. If you want to join the church and you want to become a part of what God's doing, I invite you to do that as well. Whatever it is that God's laid on your heart today, don't leave this place without responding. Let's stand and sing our hymn of commitment.